Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Dr. Michael Sherman, the Chief Medical Officer and Senior Vice President for Health Services at Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare. Harvard Pilgrim is a New England-based regional health plan with 1.25 million members. It has been ranked number one by the NCQA for the past 10 years. Michael holds bachelor's and master's degrees from the University of Pennsylvania in medical anthropology. He attended Yale Medical School and is a board-certified cardiac anesthesiologist. In the mid-1990s, he made the decision to pursue an MBA at Harvard Business School with the thought that he would seek to blend together his clinical expertise with a business education, but he was sure of one thing, that he would never work for an insurance plan. In this podcast, he tells the story of his career, about becoming a physician, making the transition to executive leadership, and how he ultimately worked for three insurers, ironically the payers he said he would not work for. Michael's career involves a great deal of serendipity, but it also shows his deliberateness as he worked to develop the skills he knew he needed to progress as an executive by gaining exposure and experience in a wide array of organizations. He is also quite candid about his successes and challenges, which shows that the road to senior leadership is never smooth sailing. His discussion of the work he is doing with value-based payment and bundling at Harvard Pilgrim is particularly useful and timely. It is very popular to demonize health insurers, but Michael's efforts to create win-win arrangements between Harvard Pilgrim and its partners in the provider community shows what is actually possible. It is interesting to see how his passion for developing these agreements meshes with a recurring theme of negotiations from different points in his career leading up to his current role. The podcast concludes with a discussion about Michael's leadership style and his recommendations for physicians who are looking to make the transition from clinical leadership to executive leadership. This is the longest podcast I've done so far, but Michael shares a lot of wisdom and insight throughout, and I think it's well worth listening to the whole interview. You are listening to the full-length interview. An abridged version of the podcast is also available for download. There is also a podcast timeline and links to the organizations and papers discussed at our website, healthleaderforge.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the interview. Welcome to The Forge, Michael. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today because you are the first physician executive that I've been able to have on the podcast. And you've also had a fascinating career in a wide variety of organizations. To start, you graduated in 1982 from the University of Pennsylvania with both a bachelor's and a master's degree in medical anthropology with minors in molecular biology and chemistry. Did you know when you started at the University of Pennsylvania that you ultimately wanted to go to medical school? I did intend to go to medical school and took all the obligatory science courses and I genuinely enjoyed them, but happened to um, just out of interest take an anthropology class as well. And I was struck by the how how diverse it was and how interdisciplinary. And I don't even think I knew that the field of biomedical anthropology existed. So I started taking courses in human evolution and looking at genetic variants and how they might impact 
how individuals respond physiologically or, or t to disease, et cetera. And there, were, there was a pathologist in the department who did autopsies on mummies and that provided some learnings about disease today. How right. come we found heart disease but couldn't find cancer, for example? And uh, so it, it really, um, I understood kind of in intuitively how that connected to um, medicine but I like the fact that it had you thinking more broadly than just about biochemical pathways and the like. The other uh, thing that came up, and, and this is just about taking about the culture and environment, was that the, the typical pre-med at Penn was very head down focused. If you um, looked at the grade posted at the end of the course, it was behind lock class by the last four of your social security number. Uh -huh. In the anthropology department, your test or, or more frequently a paper would be on, on a bookcase in, in a series of bins that you could go pick up at your uh, convenience. So just a very different culture and I thought it was a nice compliment to the sciences. Okay. And so after you graduated from the University of Pennsylvania, you attended medical school at Yale. This is a kind of a transformative experience for most people. So I'm curious, what surprised you most about medical school? Was it what you expected? It was pretty much what I expected, but it also was an introduction into a system of education, which although there were many positives, I also realized intuitively that there were a lot of improvement opportunities. Uh, so for example, on the clinical side, you're frequently taught by individuals who are year two ahead of you. Okay. Um, a third, fourth year student, you have interns and residents. Now they're very busy people, generally, usually most of them were pretty helpful, but generally they've had no instruction in teaching and or in leadership or management. And so, um, you know, there, there was a bit of a lottery to what resident you were assigned to as a medical student. Okay. And I'd say the same thing as an intern assigned to a team. And so I saw a lot of opportunities for improvement in how they manage the teams and you know and, and how work with the students etc so uh, that was um, I guess a surprise but it's something that is I've gotten deeper into management I found that you know healthcare frequently uh, clinical settings are, are some of those that have lagged behind other industries in terms of good management practice the other thing that surprised me about Yale Medical School and I, and I think that just in terms of their admissions office is they wanted to create a, a diverse environment in terms of interest so mm -hmm. I was surprised by how many individuals um, had other degrees or had other careers or had taken time off. So there were people there who had taken several years off to be in the Peace Corps. There was someone who was older who was a professional skier, someone else who'd been a professional ballet dancer. Wow. And the skier and ballet dancer ended up getting married, actually, I'm sure. <laughs> and they have their own family uh, practice center How neat. Um, in, wow. in the Northeast. So um, it was just a really interesting environment, and you know, and I thought mesh well with my needs and interests. Yeah, and you came in with a, a, a some somewhat non-traditional major as well. Yeah, I think uh, they. I, again, I, I think I, I wasn't that calculating, in, in uh -huh. you know, at the time I decided to get a anthropology degree as well, and again by careful planning and m double counting courses toward various requirements, I was able to do the masters and bachelors in four years together. That's pretty but impressive, but actually. I, but I, to, to but, get, but, yeah. but I um, you know, again, it was good logistical planning. Yeah. And uh, yeah. so, for example, a course in human genetics counted toward the graduate degree and toward the undergraduate major and toward the molecular biology minor. So it was a lot of creativity and going summers and, and okay. with yeah. some AP credit as well. But yeah. so, you know, that was, so I, th I, so I, th I, I think at that point that 
that also helped differentiate me, not just somebody with good grades, but uh, some broader interests that they thought would contribute a different point of view to the, uh, to the environment and the community and the class. Great. So after, after you graduated from medical school, you did a residency in anesthesia. What attracted you to anesthesia? Well, there are a couple of things. So I, I practiced anesthesia, I trained in anesthesia, and did fellowship training in cardiac anesthesia. Okay. So um, what I liked about that was, first of all, the immediacy. And uh, you know, as an anesthesiologist, you, you pretty much see the, uh, the results right away, good or bad. <laughs> and uh, so that feedback loop is very affirming if, if you like what you're doing. Yeah. And I particularly liked cardiac anesthesia where you know, you, there was a lot more cardiovascular physiology and understanding how do you stop the heart, which is easy, and then how do you start the heart again after bypass surgery, which wow. may or may not be more challenging. So and then the anesthesiologist is actually doing that yeah, they're, the they're thinking about the drug. Well, it's a team approach, okay. but you know, your your choice of drugs and whether you put an intraoperative balloon pump or other technologies in is, is something you do with the team. And you know, think about the, the choice of drugs certainly, and you know how you're ventilating them and, and certain other aspects. So, so the other thing that I liked about anesthesia broadly is that it was a good mix in my mind of the cognitive and you know and the procedural. So I like doing procedures, um, yeah. but you know, also all procedures and kind of less thought process around it wasn't attractive either. Okay. So as an anesthesiologist, you, particularly a cardiac anesthesiologist, you get to do a number of things procedural, yeah. but you also have to really think about it and you know, understand you know, how you're calculating the systemic vascular resistance or cardiac output or other indicators, and, and et cetera. Uh, neat. So it's not just kind of doing the same kind of cookie cutter procedure over yes. and over. Every, every case is a little bit different yes. and t a little bit of a puzzle to solve. Yeah. The, the other thing is in, in the program I was in, your, your last year of residency, if, you know, the, some of the residents, if you were fairly competent and had good leadership skills, were given attending privileges at the county hospital. So it meant that you actually were running the team and determining who is managing what case? You've, you know, this was a busy trauma center. Wow. You know, who, wh even determining which cases got priority over the other if there were more cases needing to the OR than to the OR than others. So it was kind of my first leadership and management experience, and it was something that I, I found that I enjoyed. Okay, I wanted to ask you, kind of, uh, society holds physicians in a high regard, and being a physician is usually an important part of a person's identity once kind of you achieve that. Um, when did you really feel like you had become a physician? Meaning, when had you internalized that as a professional identity? That's that's a great question, and um, I, you know, I think it varies among individuals. For me, it was my last year of residency training. Okay. And I think as a medical student, you're you're not a physician; you're a doctor in training, and 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 you're aware of that. And society may be impressed that you're a medical student. And you're you're there thinking how little do you know about any <laughs> one subject. Right. And even when you finish and you know intern resident, you're you're still in learning mode. And um, you know, you, you, obviously, you finish medical school, you're called doctor. You are legally a physician. But I, I think it's really a question: When do you feel competent? When do you feel confident that you're going to manage a situation? And, and again, that's not a point in time, that's a process. But I think by the time you're in your final year of residency and, and again, leading a team and managing others and you're the one who is um, looked to in a crisis, th that's when it, it all comes together and, and you develop that self-confidence and, and uh, you know, that cultural association. Okay. So you practiced anesthesia until 1996. Uh, when you started an MBA program at Harvard Business School. 
What made you decide to pursue a business education at this point in your career? And what did you hope to do once you actually graduated with that degree? Yeah, so um, that's a great question. Um, the only thing I was sure of is I would never end up working for a health plan, which is where oh, I am, yeah. of course. Today. <laughs> so that's the only thing I, I was sure of at that point. But Why um, was that? I'm just curious. Because I viewed them as being an, about preventing the delivery of care and okay. about creating barriers rather than the type of things that I actually do today, okay. which are helping to align incentives and figure out how to allocate resources and put the tools in place to deliver better care. Okay. But um, I didn't, I, I think, I'd say I didn't understand that then, but I also think the industry was different at that point. Okay. Where it was viewed very differently. So, yeah. um, you know, it was kind of the early 90s, and I'm out there practicing and, and kind of minding my own business, you know, and I, 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 you know, I should have been, I guess, satisfied. Hmm. And so a couple of elements came together serendipitously. So first I, um, I, I became board certified, which as a physician is kind of big deal and kind of what everyone aspires to. Right. Uh, so for anesthesia, there is the written boards, which you can take right away, and then there's oral boards, oral exams, which are can be a little more challenging, which you have to wait a while to take. So I took them, passed them right away, and you know that was uh, obviously an accomplishment and kind of like a um, dog chasing a car. Now I've gotten the car. Now what do you do with it? Right. So. I'd been in academic mode for so many years, you know, what's the next challenge, what's the next test, what's the next course, what more can you learn, right. that I, you know, I, I, it was hard to stop and get out of that mode. Okay. So um, I actually ended up taking, um, at just a local university, a couple of business courses, even economics and other things that I hadn't had nice. the time for, and okay. uh, accounting, really enjoyed those. And also, this was the early 90s, we had a healthcare reform version 1.0, Hillary Care, as you recall. So the entire medical profession thought they would all be out of business within a year or two. And and you, you laugh, but there was actually a collective sense of depression among many specialties about what the world would look like. And of course, the world did not end, and it's not ending now with the ACA, but there was a lot of angst and, um, you know, I remember a lot of, you had a lot of physicians going into sales or investment management or things that were tangentially, if that, you know, tied to medicine, real estate. There was, now, again, that was a bit of an overreaction, but so there, but there was a thought process of, you know, what do I need to do to be positioned well for the future? Yeah. There was also more going on in the business side. So at that point, there were some physician practice management organizations that were buying up practices, and they had names like Vicor and Med Partners, and um, and many of them did blow up. Coastal physicians, particularly, destroyed tens of billions of dollars in shareholder value, and they, they forgot some basic lessons. Like once you buy a practice, and the physicians aren't employees, they may not actually work as hard as they did before. But you know, which again sounds some, some agency now. issues. Just that, yeah. Some, yeah, just some agency <laughs> issues. So. But that was kind of the heyday, so I saw all this going on and, you know, hospitals creating new lines of service and things, and I thought, I, you know, I have an interest in that. I could be doing that, but no one, I don't have the knowledge, and I, no one's going to take me seriously. You're just a doc. Right. So, um, you know, I, I need both to learn and to, to get some credibility. Okay. And, and I also just remember thinking how poorly managed many of the hospitals were that I, that I experienced. And I remember going to... Um, a CEO of a hospital that that had a, a new line of service in cardiac surgery that they had not before, and I was doing a lot of the cardiac anesthesia, and they hired someone from UCLA who as a as a manager, a nurse manager, and she was terrible with the docs mm. and terrible with her own staff in terms of how she managed, you know, and very dictatorial, unable to collaborate. And I, I went to the CEO and and I and I said to him, you know. 
generally I've seen something where someone is very supportive of their staff, their staff like them, the doctors hate them, sometimes the doctors love them. I've never seen anyone so completely alienate all the stakeholders. <laughs> and, and he kind of laughed and didn't have a good answer. But uh -huh. I just saw so many bad examples of management. I, I remember as a resident, middle of the night, needing to replace an IV catheter in someone's neck, a central line. Mm -hmm. And I remember um, because I couldn't easily get that piece of equipment without having to page someone and, and do something that would take an hour in the middle of the night, I used a much more expensive full kit as if you were doing this from scratch, which okay. probably cost $500 instead of $100 right. because I could get it. And there were, there, were so, there were so many examples of just poor management, and, and I just thought there was a need uh, in, you know, for more, which, which is really where the industry is going now. But again, in, um, you know, in the 90s, that was, uh, you know, there was less pressure. And, and some of those hospitals actually are, are no longer in business, by the way. Sure. I mentioned. Yeah. Um, so I, I looked around and, and I thought about getting a part-time MBA. And I, I thought, and my assumption at that point was, I'll do that. I'll continue practicing, and it'll provide some opportunities along the kind of traditional clinical hierarchy around being a department chairman or or doing something in addition to my clinical practice. Right. And that because that was kind of my plan. And then I remember um, there was one night I was up all night with this cardiac emergency, and it was three or four in the morning, and you know I'm I, I think my circadian rhythms off, were off, I knew my body temperature was off, I, I was cold, I had a blanket ranked, wrapped around myself, and I, got, I had this crazy idea. And, and you know, I'd, I'd always gone to very good schools and, had, had, you know, and hadn't been thinking about it through that lens for a part-time MBA. And it occurred to me, everyone around you is talking about getting a part-time MBA, or it seemed that way. If you do that, you're just going to be a doc with a part-time MBA and you're not going to be taken seriously. What are the best business schools? Sure. And so I, I, I kind of made a decision, or I thought of a decision, and then I kind of affirmed it later when I actually went. I said, what if I applied to the top business schools? Uh, let's just maybe give that a try and see what happens. Yeah. So did the applications, got into Harvard and Stanford, which, wow. uh, which are, I guess, hard to get into. And yeah. I didn't really think about <laughs> it. Hard is probably an understatement. <laughs> and, and, you know, again, I didn't think about it because I already had gotten accepted to a few you know, weekend programs, part-time. So I figured it was kind of on a lark. Let's see what happens. You yeah. know, took the GMATs and yeah. uh, so, you know, went through all that and got in. It's like, oh, now what do I do? And, you know, it occurred to me that, so it was a, it was a tough choice. I thought Harvard just had a bigger draw. Sure. And, uh, but they were both excellent programs. Yeah. And um, But you were working full-time, making good money, I'm sure, as, yeah. a, as a staff anesthesiologist. That must have yeah. been a tough decision to, it, to it, it was go into debt. Or, it was or tough financially, but I, I, I also had this belief that it was the right thing to do. And, it, and you know, I know I wasn't even sure that it meant that I would stop practicing after that. Okay. And I did practice again for another decade part-time, but I, it just seemed it was a good idea. Now, I, my, my greatest uh, crisis of confidence was actually the first day of business school, jumping ahead for a moment. And as a simulation, they put us in teams and had us making and selling greeting cards against other teams. And when I say making greeting cards, I mean w with construction paper and glue and beads. And, and and it was actually my wife who at that time we were, she was with me, I dragged her all over the country and we weren't married, but we were together then. Okay. And it was her birthday a few days a after that. So my team made her birthday card with construction paper and glue and over. And, 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 and I remember being really <laughs> depressed at the end of the day. And, and I remember thinking, you know, I, I'm a, board-certified cardiac anesthesiologist. I was, you know, in the R doing 
valve surgery the other, in, and and now I just made greeting cards out of, you know, <laughs> and and that that was uh, so I did have a crisis that passed and it yeah. um, fortunately and, and did it you was see the value of the lesson eventually or yeah there, there was a lesson in how poorly we actually worked together as a team ah okay so, so it, it was but at the time it was kind of depressing but it, and it was so making the decision it, you know again it was it was kind of t on the one hand. It was easy in that I figured going to Harvard Business School, you know, that's not going to be a bad decision, sure. right? Sure. Um, worst case, if you, you know, uh, on the other hand, financially it was tough. I had just started to get out of debt and uh, hadn't yet paid off my student loans, which I just paid off oh. a few years ago. Oh. Went into further debt. Uh -huh. And, you know, again, at that point, this was in the late 90s, you know, two years including everything was about $100,000. Yeah. And I actually thought I would practice part-time while in business school. Yeah. And it was so, um, the curriculum there was so demanding that it actually is something I didn't, so I got licensed, but I, I just never had the time to in it sure. during that period of time. So. You know, I it was so. You know, I, I made what was a very difficult decision. What was interesting is that so my father is um, an oral surgeon, okay, and he couldn't see it. He, he's like, "You're not doing this. My son's not a quitter." And I said, "Well, I'm not quitting. I'm going to Harvard Business School for for, for two years." And okay. he had a lot of trouble with that. And yeah. I think what happened is most of his friends who are physicians or, or dentists as well said, "Are you crazy? I would do that in a second if I could." Okay. And, you know, so he, he kind of came around, but I th it, it really took him a long time. <laughs> but there was also the argument, like, can you afford, people, a lot of people said, I, I'd like to, I can't afford to. And well, I mean, it wasn't, I thought that was kind of a, you know, an artificial distinction. Yes, you'll go into further debt, and but you can afford to do anything you want to. Just the question is whether you think it's worth it in the long term. And, um, you know, I just said at that point, there was kind of just a belief that it was. And again, it took a while. After business school, you're paid in a management role by your value, not because you're an anesthesiologist. It took right. a while to get back up there, but it but it was worth it, and it's you need to be ready to do that if you're going to make that kind of change. Yeah. And and then it's funny, a lot of the other physicians didn't believe the people I worked with closely didn't believe it. They were like, "You're not." I, I mean, it was two weeks. I was, yeah. you know, given notice, and and, and they're like, "You're not leaving," and they 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 kind of didn't believe me until I. I and then the hospital lead said, we'll keep your privileges on. And I said, well, I'm resigning my privileges. And they were like, well, why don't we just put them on hold, um, you know, or something. And I, I, so I, you know, the people kind of couldn't believe. And you see that more these days, okay. um, more people in non-clinical careers. But I think everyone just kind of had trouble believing it, given the point I was at. Now, jumping ahead today, it's interesting how many physicians and non-physicians, but physicians particularly, are, are looking to expand their horizons, going back for additional training, or even not. I know that um, a, a number of years ago, some of the consulting firms like McKinsey decided that they need to cast broader nets for expertise, and they've been known for hiring people other than just MBAs. And they interviewed at the top four medical schools. And, and okay. they did, they essentially did, and I, I heard from a friend that there was an informational session at Johns Hopkins. And he said he went, and between the, the medical students and residents and perhaps faculty, there were several hundred people in the audience at Hopkins wanting to learn about what were the opportunities if they were to work for McKinsey as a consultant. So rather than going into a residency, they would just go straight to work yeah, for McKinsey? Yeah, well, some were medical, others were residents. Well, residents already. Others were, and, you know, I'm, I, wow. I feel strongly that, that I, I did it, I think, the right way. 
um, in terms of be, you know, first establishing myself as a physician, gaining that credibility, yeah. and then going to, to business school. And now you see more people going directly from medical school to business school and never doing a residency, or I've seen people leave residencies, and I get their resumes, and th there are certain positions they can take, yeah. um, but they're not helpful in terms of any type of physician leadership role because they don't have the credibility as a physician, the idea that others, physicians nurse others in a clinical environment will actually listen to them and respect them. So it kind of goes back to what we were talking about, about your identity and establishing your identity as a physician. Mm -hmm. You said you had to kind of establish yourself. It was a procedure. You had to um, feel competence in your skills. If you've never practiced, then how yeah. would you feel? Yeah. So again, it depends what you want to do. I mean, if you're in yeah. investment management, it may not be critical. And yeah. some people do that, and, and that, that's valid. But I also get resumes from others. And even, you know, not, you, you've got to, you know, have obviously an MD, you've got to have completed a residency, you have to be board certified to work in this type of environment. And, and some people have questioned, we've gotten resumes from people who are not board certified. And, and I, I, I've been, been very black and white, absolutely not, won't even consider them. And, and the reason for that is very simple. As someone in my kind of role, where I'm making policy decisions and, and decisions that affect over a million people, Frequently, there are those, such as physicians or hospital or others, who don't like the decision. And they're going to try to find every reason they can to impugn your integrity or capability if they don't agree with it, even if it's the right decision. And again, generally, it's those who have dollars to lose in the, in the argument. And if you are, do not have that credibility or are not board certified, they, they, they can point to you and say, well, you're, you're in the role you're at because you could not cut in clinical practice. So I think it's very important for this kind of role to establish that credibility and, and to be able to talk intelligently and to have been in the trenches. Yeah, absolutely. So you left business school and went to work for a company called DeVito, which at the time was the largest independent provider of dialysis services worldwide, somewhere in the vicinity of $1.5 billion in revenue. How did you find the position? And um, it sounds like it's a fairly significant management challenge for someone right out of business school. Yeah, it's um, so one of the nice things about going to a place like Harvard Business School is the recruiting literally started my second week there when some a consulting firm took me out to dinner. So, and again, this was new. I never had that type of experience um, as a physician. You know, um, from the start, the recruiting at Harvard uh, Business School is intense and particularly intense the second year. I recall um, one interview with a, with a boutique investment bank in uh, San Francisco that was, was trying to hire me as an equity analyst. They flew a group of us out there to San Francisco for the weekend. Uh, next morning we get up, they made sure we understood don't wear suits, it's business casual, and they, they meant it, they were business casual. 6 a.m. were in their offices, into half a day of interviewing. They then put us on a bus, took us to Napa, uh, where we went to not one but two wineries, the second of which they had a dinner in a cave each course having a different wine, except for the first course, which would ha had Istoli vodka. And when you went back to your hotel at the end of the day, they had a bottle of wine inscribed with your name from one of the wineries. So wow. there was a lot of recruiting, and that was actually a good way to, uh, you can joke, that was a very good way to get to know the people you might be working with. Yeah. So there was a it lot is. of opportunity. Yeah. And you know, a another point, had I not taken that educational route but tried to go a part-time, or just try to grow through the ranks, getting a position like that is, it could have taken years and pain and a lot of, so it kind of opens a lot of doors, obviously. And a lot of that is about the network as well as the education. So in this case, um, so first of all, the, the CEO was a Harvard Business School grad. 
I was taking a course with a professor. Her name is Regina Herzinger, who's been somebody a mentor to me over the years. And uh, she's amazing. She was the only professor at Harvard Business School focused on healthcare then. Now she's one of several, but it, then it was her. And her course was kind of standing room only to get into. And so I, I got to know her rather well. And she was, um, she had the CEO, Victor Sheltiel, as a speaker. And she was on their board of directors. So she had an interest in it uh, to try to make sure they get the best and brightest. It was also a great company. It wasn't just kind of a boring operating company, but they were in high growth mode. So there was a chance to innovate, to take on many different roles, um, to take on more responsibility because they had very limited middle management. So it was, it was a really hectic environment, but a fun one. So um, it was really Professor Herzinger who uh, made that introduction. And actually four students from Harvard Business School ended up going to that company company in my year, which is unusual, wow, which is un particularly for an operating healthcare company, particularly then when healthcare was less in vogue than iTech. Were your colleagues who joined you from, from business school, were they also healthcare background or were you the only one with the healthcare background? Um, they were, mixed? they actually did not have healthcare backgrounds. They had okay. um, investment management backgrounds or finance and or operations and ended up, I ended up working on large deals with managed care organizations that may involve partnerships and building new centers and some merger and consolidation acquisitions, et cetera, and some quality programs and helping put together a physician network to manage the entire spectrum of care. Others, another colleague worked for the, for the finance person now, is now CFO of their dialysis division and, uh, and you know, others in operations and, and in, you know, and mergers and acquisitions. So it was, uh, more, it was an exciting company, not that happened to be in healthcare for some, for me, obviously, I was going to do something in healthcare. Sure. But it was a great environment. It was fun and a lot of learning. And, you know, and, and again, it was really uh, the Wild West. It was probably the least managed environment I've ever been in because they, they didn't have, you know, there were no, uh, there was very little performance management. We didn't have any travel policies. The CEO would say, "You're all free agents. Get out there, do deals." So it was probably the least managed. Um, wow. And uh, probably not representative of other places I've worked, but yeah. but it was a fun environment and a high growth uh, type yeah. of, of culture. So this is your first, really. I mean, it's a clinical organization, but now you're in a management role. Correct. How how was the transition for you? I mean, you're not being called on to practice medicine in, in this role? Well, there's the, you know, it's interesting. There's, it, it was a little tough. I mean, and part of it was the, the mindset of management versus the clinical, and I got that. But again, there, there, there weren't a lot of good role models there for me to follow. So to some extent, it involved finding your own way, and, and there were things I had to learn over the years. So uh, as an example, there were some assignments I was given that were very nebulous. And in retrospect, I realized they were too nebulous. And what I didn't feel comfortable doing then was pushing back or, or saying, wait a second, I need some more clarity around what the objectives are. I don't, you've just come up with something very vague. What are the goals? What does success look like? And let's figure out what I need to do that. And I, I wasn't smart enough to, to do that. And I didn't have a good role model or, or mentor for teaching me that. Okay. So some of how you get things done in an organization challenging and then understanding uh, the politics and which is true anywhere and and who you know who talks to whom and etc and, and kind of the informal influence you know networks and again that's something which I understood intellectually but but you had to figure out yeah yeah okay you stayed with the Vita for about two years and then you moved to a company called Health Allies what did Health Allies do and what was your role there? Yeah, so I, I'd been there about two and a half years and they went through an, a merger which unearthed some, some challenges and the CEO wound up leaving. 
Okay. So when, once that happened, you know, I think generally loyalty is to the people who recruited you, and the CEO had recruited me personally. Meanwhile, the whole dot-com boom was hitting, and so everyone was kind of moving around anyway at that point. Yeah. That was and an exciting time in the economy. Yeah. It, it was. And so, you know, a pattern that has kind of represented most of my career moves, someone called me who I knew through my network, and this was a classmate, actually a section mate then from Harvard Business School who I knew very well, and he said, I'm, I'm in an investment, I'm in a private equity firm, we just funded our own e-health company, will you go talk to the CEO and tell me what you think about this? And I, I did and met with the CEO and he said, we're trying to, you know, they have some web bill check product, you can go online, see if you pay too much for your hospital stay and they can help negotiate something better. And I said, you should be creating a prospective marketplace for healthcare services. And he kind of said, you're right, we're working on that, uh, want to work for us. Neat. So um, okay. just kind of serendipitous. So that and so that, was that what you actually did with yeah, them? Yeah, so I wound up um, taking the role of uh, vice president for what we call provider business development and eventually product management. Um, if you're competent or semi-competent and don't complain too much, people tend to give you more responsibility. <laughs> it's, a, it's a truism. Yeah, I agree. Um, and but but anyway, so it it was kind of fun. And, and I really, this was a new role for just in a very early stage company. Yeah. So I literally came in, uh, there's no department. My office, it, we're in these temporary offices. There's uh, there's a desk in it. And I think I had a scrounge for a chair and some other pieces of furniture. And um, I put together a team over a couple of years of 10 people and, and defined our strategy, and which was about looking at healthcare services which were not traditionally covered by insurance. Okay. Um, think LASIK or IVF or cosmetic surgery. And we wanted to create a marketplace and we'd go to the physicians. So think about a plastic surgeon. Some of them were a little not that happy about this new intermediary and it pointed out, look, you're, you're currently spending money on getting business. They don't like to use that term, but it may be running an ad in, in Boston or Los Angeles magazine or wherever you are or you know whatever, but you, you are spending money to acquire patients. Instead of spending that at fixed cost, give our people a better deal. Than the, you can decide if it's five or 10 or 12, you can vary it over time of the year or time of the day or whatever. Um, and it doesn't have to be everything you offer, so we're being very friendly. And we'll, we'll, through our web portal, this was back in the around 2000, which, so this was different, uh, we'll give you the ability to sell your benefits and what differentiates you and, and have it be not just about cost, but about what you, know, what you do better and why it's better, et cetera, and how you connect with people. And again, you've got to give our membership a better deal, but you can decide how much it is, and then they can decide um, through this portal who they're going to go to. Huh. And so I was really stocking the shelves by going out and working with the physician societies and individuals and large groups, identifying what the right specialties were and negotiating the deals with them. So again, it was good, good for someone who was a physician, but, it, but you know, it was also the business skill set that, that really was being leveraged there. So it was important that you were able to bring the credibility of having been a practicing physician to this position. Yeah, but most of the people I hired, uh, in fact, none of them were, were physicians. They were people who, um, most who'd been in healthcare, who'd worked in a hospital setting, maybe in contracting or, or, or you know, some had other clinical backgrounds or legal backgrounds, but they, they got healthcare, they'd gone through bachelor's or graduate programs that provided um, some experience, but they, you know, most did not have clinical backgrounds, but they understood the healthcare environment. So after you worked at Health Allies for, for a couple of years, you made the jump over to a company called Immusol, I think which was later called Ithorex. Yes. In about 2001. And this is a, 
a biotechnology company, so something very different. Yeah, it was, and again, um, very unplanned. And, and, and uh, you know, my approach has always been: do what you like, focus on the skills, and kind of the opportunities will find. Do do a good job. Yeah. Be, be known for integrity and for delivering results. Things find you. So, so what happened is: so first, there were, there were two things that came together here. One of which is we had really been successful in growing what I wanted to grow, and it was selling very slowly. This was in the early years of consumer-driven healthcare and there was very little revenue coming in. So we ended up actually significantly downsizing the company and it ended up getting sold after a bit of time to United Healthcare. Mm-hmm. But there, was, there wasn't a whole lot left to do and, and it just the revenue wasn't coming in. Okay. So, um, so an interesting idea, but so maybe it, ahead yeah, of its time. It was ahead of its time and again it got purchased and they imbe- embedded that in some of their offerings. So the, we were faster, we did a better job of recruiting providers and then getting people to pay us for that. And there's actually a Harvard Business School case study on that, which talks about the challenge. And I, you know, a lot of it was really about the difficulty and getting a brand with an individual, which is how they started. We want to sell this to individuals, and they they then decided late in the game it should be sold in an employee benefit, which which was smart. But okay. um, in the days of B two C business to consumer, people, you know, we didn't get that initially. Mm-hmm. So um, so I was open to new ideas, and the I got, I got a call from a um, colleague, a business school classmate, and here we, he was actually co-president of the HBS Healthcare Student Association with me. So we knew each other well, we'd kept in touch. And he actually um, had been in biotech, and he just uh, had recently joined this company um, called Emisol as head of uh, business development. And he was trying to get me to join them as um, head of medical affairs. And, and this is something in retrospect, I think it was a good experience. It, it probably wasn't a good choice. I'm not sure I would make the same decision again. But it was good experience and good learning. Okay. Uh, one of the learnings was that I don't really know enough about biotech to, 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 to choose the right winners and losers. So, okay. um, you know, investors in biotech pursue a portfolio approach, right? I, you would never buy one biotech stock. Yet in, in looking at a company with one, with one product, essentially, you're making that bet with your career. And again, there was a lot of upside and equity, which probably swayed me. But uh, ultimately, I was very, very alluring, expensive. right? The yeah, possibilities was, uh, yeah, there. I mean, you could be yeah. very. But yeah. um, I probably did not sufficiently understand the risk profile, nor the fact that uh, you know all the there were a lot of small companies and up and down the street, even where that was located in San Diego, and within two years, most of them were out of business. So this was a company though that had some proprietary technology and had been using it to develop essentially drug targets. So they were telling, selling these tools to pharma companies like the Pfizer's of the world or Novartis and, and they were using these tools to develop drugs. And, and there was a compound, an entity that had, uh, was anti-proliferation so the thought was it could be used you know, to, you know, to treat certain proliferative diseases, even maybe cancer or, or psoriasis or other things. And so what they wanted was someone who could, uh, the, the buzzword was forward integrate at that point. So help us go from being a company that delivers to uh, services to bigger drug companies to developing our own drug. And as I told my friend uh, vigorously, I don't really know anything about this. This is so not in my bailiwick. And, you know, and, and he, he, was in, he did a very good job of selling me. And he said, look, first of all, the regulatory part, let's just agree you don't know anything about, we'll get some consultants to help you figure out the whole FDA thing. 
and which is, which is actually a good lesson if there are parts of the job you don't know, surround yourself by staff or others who can fill in. That's yeah. a, a good lesson any time. Um, but then the way he framed it, which, which, which I finally got, was it's not, you know, you may, not, you may feel you don't understand biotech and that you lack the competencies, which I thought I did, but for a company in this stage, what you really need to do is take this potential drug, get it through to approval, working with the rest of the team, and then create a clinical trial network. Get out there, get the best and brightest, develop a, um, the protocols and to work with the best and brightest. This was um, for an indication of proliferative vitro retinopathy, so it was an eye indication, and you know, working with the best and brightest, and I did that. So that was a skill set I thought I had based on what I had done previously. So it was a different environment and a good, good lesson here. So the, if you framed it not as I'm going from a consumer-driven healthcare startup to biotech, but I'm going to something where I was trying to sell physicians on why they should work with us to something where I was trying to sell physicians on why they should work with us, and, and for far less than the other larger pharma were paying for the same trials, generate the excitement, get the right people, et cetera. That was a skill set I thought I had, and I was successful in putting that together. Yeah. Now, what I probably didn't appreciate at the time was that we were underfunded for what it would take to get it through, and I ended up very frustrated with the CEO because the size of the, of the, uh, of the trial was, in my mind, insufficient to prove that it worked. And sure enough, the results were equivocal and the company ended up floundering for a couple of years and ended up failing eventually. Mm -hmm. But the, you know, it was underpowered in the statistical sense to actually deliver what we had hoped and they were hoping to show a trend, et cetera. But it, so we don't know if the drug worked, but the trial was, was underpowered. But it was, okay. so it was frustrating in, in being in a startup that was under-resourced for what they wanted to do. And again, one of the lessons there is just because the CEO and board don't know that or won't acknowledge it doesn't mean that you, it's, it doesn't mean they're smarter than you are necessarily. Right. So there was some faith that there are all these really smart people there who knew more than me and that I should trust that as an indication that a lot had been invested in the company. And the lesson there was trust your own intuition and, uh, and, and common sense yeah. and don't always believe, you know, don't always drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> that must have been a unique experience uh, just adding this experience of working with the FDA on this kind of approval process is such an important part of the healthcare environment to really be intimately have having had an intimate experience with it. Yes. Yeah, so the benefit wasn't you know wasn't so much the company itself. It was in my role now. And again, you know, that we live in a complex ecosystem, and it, it's being able now that I chair our P and T committee and are dealing more with high cost drugs to be able to understand that process and how the pharma companies think about this and to be able to understand how those fit into the mix. So it was it was valuable learning for what I do today, even though I didn't know that was the case at the time. Sure. The, one of the challenges, again, we have a very complex ecosystem and it, it's important to get experience in, you know, depending on what you want to do in enough aspects that you understand how the pieces fit together. You don't have to be an expert in everything, but you need enough knowledge acquired through education or experience that you understand the environment and the regulations and how the pieces fit together. For example, I interviewed an MD the other day, an MD MBA, who work exclusively in pharma companies since getting his MBA. And he, um, 
very impressive individual, very very bright, uh, best schools, but he didn't actually understand uh, anything about how payers make decisions, which is surprising since he worked in a pharma company. You would think that, but how we make decisions, how we construct formularies, how we work with physicians to try to influence the choices they make, etc. So at the end, of the, I was intrigued by his background, but he had so little understanding outside of his niche in healthcare that there wasn't a, a clear role for this individual within our organization, which is what he'd been hoping for. Okay. So you left Immusol and went to yet another very different company, and that was uh, Thomson Reuters. Yes. What was Thomson Reuters, and, and what did you do for them? So, so that, that was um, a very calculated move, unlike some of the others where things just happen to come up. Okay. And so, at, you know, at that point, I realized that, you know, the company was lacking leadership and that was unlikely to be successful. And, uh, you know, part, there's also a lesson when all of your colleagues come to the same conclusion as well, and, and they had a large exodus of, of their senior management. Yeah. But, so I thought, I was thinking very clearly about what I wanted to do next. And, you know, I had this background as a Harvard MBA, and uh, really, you know, was looking for the right mix of business and clinical knowledge, but I really had more of a business hat on. And so what I was looking for specifically was a general manager role in a healthcare organization. Okay. And this was a true general management role, which is I think what many aspire to. And so I, you know, I, there are some cases where people see you're an MD and assume that you're just the guy giving, well it was very clear you own the P&L, you owned the, the line of business, the sales, um, account management, marketing, et cetera. And that, that's why that was attractive to me. And again, it wasn't necessarily more money. I had to move from California to, to Ann Arbor, which probably my wife would not have suggested if, uh, if not for their career opportunity. But it was also um, with a very well-run company, a part of Thomson Reuters. They since have divested that and it's been spun off under a private equity firm. But it was a, a division formerly known as MedStat, then became known as Thomson Healthcare. But it was kind of their crown jewel, a very uh, fast-growing, uh, exciting company in healthcare analytics. Okay. So I was general manager of their payer business. Okay. And uh, for their health plan line of service, if you would. And what they did is they served um, payers um, like ours and, and others and provided the, um, the software, the analytic software and consulting services around that, the solutions I like to think of it, that help people in my position look at all the claims information we get which tells you what a, a doctor's office visit cost or what was spent on surgery or what someone's blood value is and make sense of it. You're making Taking the, that data and making it into actionable information, giving you, grouping it together so you can compare apples to apples, for example, and find variants and make good management decisions. So again, I, I never thought I'd be in a CMO role or medical director role even, but, um, and I didn't realize how valuable that would be to me, but at the time I was attracted by, less by the specifics of the industry, although I thought health IT was, was very interesting intellectually. Um, but more because of it was a general manager role with all of the accountabilities under it, and I, that's what I wanted to do next. Okay. That's, um, you were drawn into analytics. This has become a major buzz word today. It has. It wasn't, it, that must have been kind of the early phase of, of, of that. It was, it was earlier. Early. Some of our customers didn't have analytic platforms and need to be educated on why those was important. Um, today with more pressure around cost, more pressure to figure out which high cost drugs are the right ones and where they needed, um, a lot more collaboration with physicians. I mean, if we're doing a bundled payment for a total knee or 
or for cabbage surgery, for example, all of which we're doing. Um, and, and you want to figure out what's a fair price, what goes in, what are the components, and, and show the physicians what makes sense. You need to have the data put together in a way that can illustrate how, what goes into the bundle, what is what what have been the traditional costs that go out, you know, that are paid out over varying period of time periods of time, so that they can understand what they're taking risk for. Okay. So. One of the things that you you noted that you you did while you were at uh, Thomson Reuters was you introduced a negotiation curriculum. What was that about, and why did you why did you implement that? Yes. Yeah, so um, you know, it it occurred to me that we worked really hard. To, to sell business, and we were under a lot of time pressure, as you always are in that kind of role, around you know the quarterly earnings or something. And I thought that people were getting outsmarted by the um, outsmarted by the competition. And at the end of the day, when it came to negotiate it, we were we were ineffective, and we were leaving a lot of money on the table. And and also the, the the business I picked up was running off of what they should have been. They were up behind targets for revenue and operating income, which was how my incentive was based on. So I, I was very motivated. So I started, you know, I started putting something together for my people. And then I was asked by the organization to put together a two-day curriculum for the senior leadership for everyone. So it was something I only anticipated for my group and then ended up kind of drafted to do mm -hmm. it more broadly. But, but I think we realized that it just was something that people had not thought about systemically, and uh, p some people were stronger than others. But generally, it was not it was not a core competency, and and, and uh, our cut for, it was more so for our customers. Yeah. The uh, you know one one lesson I'd learned even prior to that, and, and when I was at Devita, you know they were very focused on on selling business as a, you know as a, a revenue driven company, and we were working on a, a joint venture with Group Health Cooperative, which involved building some dial centers in their hospital and some revenue shares and some other things because it was certificate of need state and this company could not move into that state without a partner and it was it was it was a, a good approach and it was the right approach and group health cooperative had a hospital that they built two or three years ago and there was a floor that was not even built out yet they had a new space it was like on the fifth floor or something and they liked putting the center there it would be easy for their nephrologist to put the dialysis center there and they negotiated very strong around the pricing for that. We paid top dollar for that rent, if you would, and and we had someone who was more in, with a sales hat who was driving that. And I, w I was ag and I was against that. I thought we were getting out, out managed there, and you know, and and they wanted to get the deal closed. And I remember pointing out, this is the fifth floor of a hospital that's sitting vacant for two years. What are they going to do? Put a McDonald's in? Or a retail store, they, you know, we should have gotten a much better deal, and we agreed to some other things, and then they wanted some other things and some other revenue share, and it, it became, I thought, a less of a good deal. And I, one of the lessons to me was at the we had a closing party, a dinner, you know, up in Seattle that everyone came to to celebrate when it was actually signed, and some people on their side had a, a bit to drink. And they were laughing in our presence, saying, "You know, we just kept asking for more and more, and you guys kept saying yes." And you know, and, and we were waiting, and you know, and finally, I, I forced. I said, "No, we're not doing anything more." And I really pushed hard, even on some people more senior than me. And the, but I, I said, "We're done." We're, you know, I, 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 we're, you know, to the other people, I said, "We're, we're beyond done, and this deal's not getting." And that, and they said, they said over drinks, "Oh yeah, we, we just couldn't believe you kept saying yes to this." And it was a reminder <laughs> yeah. that you really. Um, you know, need to be thoughtful. And again, I, I had taken negotiation in business school, so I did have some formal training in that, and I just observed a lot of a lot of mistakes that were being made. So yeah, yeah. there are many examples like that. Yeah, where, sure. Uh, 
Sure. Uh, so as a general manager and a general manager role, one of the things you're really responsible for is kind of developing a, a corporate culture for your mm -hmm. organization. What, what did you strive to do? So I, I picked up on, on the negotiations a piece of that possibly, but how, how did you see, what kind of culture were you trying to build? A culture, um, so I mean, you know, uh, broadly you want a culture of accountability, but also one where people feel valued and where they, they, they have a chance of winning and where they, you know, their efforts will be rewarded, but also understanding it's not enough to come to work every day, you need to, to meet your goals. And so uh, we had a couple of challenges there. One, this organization, back to its roots, prior to being acquired by Thomson Reuters, um, had been very academic. I mean, they, up until a few years before I came, they, they still had sabbaticals, which are unusual in the business world, paid sabbaticals. So I, one of the things that you needed to instantiate was a culture of, and, and I put it this way, and when I met with it, very senior Thompson people where I flipped, that they, they liked what I was doing, they completely got it. I said, we need more Wall Street Journal, less health affairs. And, and they got that immediately. In other words, a lot of times people would be, um, you know, I'd say, what do, you, what do you hope to achieve? Oh, we'll get a publication out of it. And I'm like, well, my goals are revenue. How, do, how does that help, you know, and how does that help us? So there was a bit of an academic environment and a little bit of here's the right way to do it unless of let's focus on what, what dr drives revenue and business growth and success. And again, success may mean different things in an academic versus non-academic, depending for profit, not for profit, but it's ensuring that everyone understood the goals and having a more defined strategic plan. And that's ever since then, I also have done more to develop a, m a more clear strategic plan myself and those around me to make sure everyone has buy-in and understands what the objectives are, et cetera. So that was, um, that was part of it. There was another part there, which I don't know that I was ever completely successful at changing, and, and that is some of the expectations, and, and this is sometimes you find in some profit-driven companies, they were, they were difficult and, and sometimes impossible. And so what I also wanted to do was drive a sense of accountability while being reasonable. If people feel that you're not being reasonable as a leader, you, you lose credibility immediately. So for example, each, I had three account teams, each of which had certain objectives for selling additional business, like consulting services or additional tools. And one of the three teams, the, the lead came to me and said, I can't do that, and, and, and can, you, can you change that target for me? And, and I listened to her, so part of, part of the lesson is listen to what your people say, and what, what she said was very reasonable. And what she said is, what you've done is put all the Medicaid health plans in my area as opposed to others, and the others have these more commercial plans. My health plans, which are funded by the state, they don't have any money. So you can give me a target of whatever you want, but they don't have any money to spend on more things. And I looked, I said, you're right. And, and I changed the allocation and, and released that. But it was, so there was a bit of trying to create that culture within my organization, where the broader organization was very tough and not always reasonable. And ultimately, that's one of the reasons I left was that I, I felt ill-equipped and that, that I could not change that from an organizational perspective. Between the organizations. And again, they were under pressure from the parent organization, Thompson, et cetera. Sure. But again, w one of the lessons about leadership you know, was really understanding what you can and can't impact. And if you're in a situation where you don't feel you're aligned necessarily with leadership or can can, can manage without saying, the reason I'm doing this is because my boss said I have to. So that's, when you're in that situation, that's a sign you, sh you maybe should think about other opportunities. So you did leave Thompson 
and you moved on to United Health. Yeah. What was what were your roles there? You did several roles there. I did. So again, that was um, very turbulent as well. It was interesting. I learned a lot, and and even the way I, I got recruited there was kind of interesting. So I, I I had been thinking about leaving, as I mentioned, I, because some of the cultural elements were not you know made it hard to put in place the kind of culture I wanted, right. and. I, I got a call from a recruiter at United Healthcare, and and they were they actually wanted to buy our company, and Thompson didn't want to sell, so they were they were aggressively trying to pick off people, and and I, I kind of said I view them as kind of this evil empire. Um, United but, yeah, Health. Well, at that, or, or at that point, no, yeah, United at that. Point. <laughs> okay. and again, I, I didn't once I got there, but you know, yeah. we, we competed with part of their business. Okay. And, okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, they were they, they were viewed as being kind of a tough environment. Well, they're an enormous company. Yeah, they are, and yeah. they 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 were and they are even more yeah. so. So you know, I I didn't really. It never even occurred to me to go there, and it would not probably not have looked. And I, I got a call from a recruiter and said, I, I understand from your background, you worked at this other startup, Health Allies, and I said, yeah. And they said, oh, yeah, and they'd acquired Health Allies. Right. And they said, do you know this person who was uh, one of the key people there who'd stayed with them? And I, I, and, and, uh, you know, I, I, I could afford to be a smart ass. And, and I said to the recruiter, I don't know, that depends. Do you like that person <laughs> at United? And they said, oh, yeah, he's very well respected. Um, and he's in a senior role at, at now, even more within United. Oh, so I said, oh, in that case, I, I know him. And so, you know, 10 minutes later, the phone rings, it's this person, they're in kind of recruitment cell mode. Okay. And, and next thing, you know, they're, they're trying to find a position, offering, you know, that, that is interesting enough for me to go to. So they were really looking for you, yes. not necessarily uh, to fill out anything particular. At they that just point, wanted you yes. on a team. Yes. Neat. Okay. Which is a good way to hire talent, yeah. actually. Okay. And so, make a long story short, United, if they want to recruit you, will. Okay. And, you know, they're flying my wife and I and having, showing us homes and, you know, saying if you have trouble selling your old home, we'll buy it. I mean, you know, they, they, they made it, they, they removed any barriers. Okay. And so I went there and it was a, overall a good, but a very turbulent experience. And they're, they're a solid organization, very well managed. So I learned a lot. I learned a lot at Thompson also about good management. I mean, it was a tough organization, but about set, setting targets and around performance management and strategic planning. I mean, they really did everything the right way there. And after a couple of startups and company DeVita, which did it on the fly, it was something I actually needed to experience and needed to learn. Okay. So that was, and, and I learned quite a bit of that at United as well, really about being focused on the objectives and et cetera. Okay. So the only challenge with the United was, so they recruited me into role, um, and uh, helping roll out the new Part D business, which was brand new then in 2006, it was mid-2005, so it was building for that. And it was being part of that senior team, and it was, again, very exciting and intellectually challenging. I, I knew I'd learn a lot. The only problem there was that th a couple of weeks after I joined, they mentioned something that they didn't bring up during the recruitment process, and that's they were about to buy a small company called Pacificare. And as y y most people know, uh, any merger, particularly one of that size, creates chaos for a long time as you try to figure out how the pieces fit together. And it created a lot of chaos. So I was in that role in Part D for a little under a year. And then they came to me and said, uh, and this is how big companies work sometimes, and they said, you know, we, um, we have the president of the Part D business for United and the president for Pacific Air. And we didn't know what to do with the person. We decided we're giving the president role from United to the United person for the combined entity, and we, we couldn't figure out what to do with the Pacific Air guy, so we gave him your job. I'm like, oh, okay. really? <laughs> uh, 
uh, that, that's interesting. What do I do now? Oh, you can go over to Ingenix, which was a part that competed most closely with where I'd been, which is really with, where with they want Thompson. Me, which is really where they wanted me in the this first place. This was the place. evil, evil empire side. Yeah. So, so now you're now so you're now in the evil empire. This is actually very calculated <laughs> that I wouldn't go to that company, but they recruited me and then ah. moved me over. So once you and were in, I'm like, do I have a choice? Well, well, no. <laughs> so um, I'm like, okay. So I went there, and again, it was it was. Interesting and chaotic. Ingenics, now part of Optum, is very high growth, but it was also kind of going, you know, we'll find a role for you. So I, I actually had two or three jobs in under a year. And at that point, there was so much turbulence that, you know, that I, you know, that I felt it was hard to get things done. In one case, I was put in charge of several businesses that, and, and went in at, uh, and said, here's our three year target to, to grow revenue. And they kind of rolled their eyes. And it's because I was the fifth person in five years who'd been trying to teach them that. So ah. there was, um, they were growing so rapidly then that I think they were spending less time on managing and on thinking how they put the pieces together. I see. And so I ended up, I said, I want to get out of here. Went to, and this is, again, part networking. I went to the chief medical officer for all of United, who I'd become friendly with. And I said, Reed, got any, any suggestions? because I'm kind of frustrated. And so he said, yes, they were doing some really innovative work on different payment models and medical home, et cetera, and let me introduce you to so-and-so. And I wound up doing some work on the primary care line of business side. So the interesting thing here is I'd never intended or wanted to work for a traditional commercial health plan. And I end up there, not, not intentionally, because I was yeah. looking to make a move out of one area of the company to another. That's what it was about. And I became more, sort of work on this medical home area, which was, has become very big and very timely. I didn't know that then. Right. But it was, it was all about the start of how do we go from telling docs what not to do and, and what to do, et cetera, to creating incentives and aligning with them and, and collaborating and finding ways to pay them more for doing things that create value, which is really something I'm passionate about. Yeah. So I did that for a while. And Humana then had a uh, role, which uh, it came to my attention. It was a new role, and you know, I, I felt that I was kind of moving all over the place within United, and it was unclear. It, was, it still appeared to be very chaotic, so I was craving a bit of stability. And so I, um, you know, I, and uh, I'll also add that I, um, I do a lot of things right, not necessarily in the right order. So now here I am, uh, 54, and I have a, uh, a daughter who's uh, five and a half. So at that point, you know, I felt like it was ne you know, the time was never right, focused on the career, and then all of a sudden it becomes important as you get older. So the other thing that was going through my head is, you know, I don't want to move every couple of years now. I want to uh, think more clearly about the environment and more stability, which, again, to earlier hadn't been important, which was, it was a benefit, I think, in career management at the yeah. point. But, so um, the, uh, this opportunity came up with Humana, and what they wanted was someone to develop and manage a new department, which is something, I, again, I like doing, physician strategies. And the idea was to be a um, department that really worked closely on developing different models for working with physicians like medical home or different types of pay for performance or other models that align incentives and got away from the fee-for-service and this becoming more and more important. But this was, you know, for a step for Humana. And then the other thing is I, I was worried about whether it was a big enough role for me and so in the discussion, they agreed to make, to make it a, a, a more robust role by also moving oversight for their medical directors, what they call their market medical officers, not those doing reviews, but the outside-facing medical directors 
who were across the markets, they were about 15, and they moved them under me from a dotted line perspective. So they reported into the market presidents and had a dotted line into me. So it provided a more, more robust role, but also since the pilots we were, were trying to develop needed to be done somewhere, it also provided kind of distribution for that, if you would. And so it worked well together. And I you know, built up a team there and hired people, including people who had worked for me before. It's something I'd done at United. It was something I did there. I've learned if you develop a reputation for integrity and people trust you, they'll follow you. And you know which people you want to recruit away. Yeah. So that, that was uh, very helpful. Um, so is this the first time you're managing geographically distributed y- yes. organizations? Yes. yes. How was that transition for you? It was challenging, but I, I you know, I, but I, you know, ultimately, I think it went well. Matrix organizations are are, are tough, and um, you know, one of the challenges with with that was the fact that in um, in different, what I realized is the medical directors, their um, their experience was determined more by the market than by me. So I could try to create a culture, and really create it almost something where I wanted to be viewed as a coach and a resource and an ally versus top down because. It was dotted line. You really had to manage by influence. So, um, but but the fact is, if you think about their lives, I might speak with them and do a call weekly, and or you know, and and visit, try to visit them at least, and, and chat with them, and visit their markets uh, once or twice a year, and bring all the group, all the medical directors together, let's say twice a year. So I was trying to do my part to build the right culture and the right incentives. But if you think about it, if you're in the New Orleans office as a medical director, you're going to work every day in the New Orleans office and you're working with their salespeople and their market presidents and others. And so what they experience in terms of a culture and in terms of just, you know, the, the whole environment is determined far more by that office than by me. Right. And different, you know, different offices had different cultures. You might imagine New Orleans and Arizona and Illinois, very different in terms of uh, what's considered uh, yeah. appropriate, as you might imagine, yeah. um, yep. you know, in terms of even alcohol consumption which you can imagine, um, New Orleans Mardi Gras time. Yeah. I, I used to like to visit that office. But, <laughs> um, but it, uh, so, and, and then there, the market presidents who also significantly influenced their experience also were very different. At that point, Yamato was trying to move from market presidents who were salespeople to those who were general managers. So again, sometimes the medical directors were challenged by how they worked with the market presidents. And then you had market presidents who were very good at collaborating which is what you need in a matrix organization. And there were those who said, you know, just take your cue from me. Yeah. And, you know, we're you don't have to listen, you don't, to, don't listen to anyone at yeah. corporate. You know, we, we need to work around them. Yeah. So um, what I found, there, there were big differences. And, um, you know, you, you did your best and, you know, and tried to build really. So I, I worked hard to build relationships with the market presence and with their bosses, the regional CEOs. So when it, whenever I visited market, I spent time with them and made sure we agreed on performance goals and built that sort of relationship as well, which I thought was important, which which helped over time, you know, get to a better point. Particularly as some people left and I became involved in recruiting. Anytime you inherit people, that's another lesson. Their loyalties may be may or may not be to you. And when you when you hire someone from scratch, you can kind of build that relationship and make sure you're getting the right person, which is, which is a good lesson to learn early on. Uh, the other lesson from Umana was understanding where the opportunities are and that the job as defined by someone else may not be the way to do it best. And that's on you, not on your boss necessarily. Okay. So in, in this situation, um, Umana, my role lived in the commercial organization. That's where they recruited me. That's where I, I reported up. And I, I quickly realized that Umana was challenged in the commercial area 
but really hitting it out of the part in Medicare Advantage. And even uh, looking forward, you know, a number of years to um, just now, you know, 2015, you know, it's just been announced that Humana is being acquired by Aetna. And the reason is for their Medicare Advantage business. If okay. you're on the commercial side, you may be uh, looking around for something different to do, but it's really for the Medicare Advantage business where they're strong. So uh, even at that point, though, I realized that is where they were stronger. That's where the growth was focused, and that's where they were making most of their money from a business perspective. But I was on the commercial side. Okay. So what I did is I created relationships with a Medicare organization, starting with the Medicare CEO. And, and, I, and I realized the type of things we're doing for commercial, improving value, decreasing cost, improving quality, are equally important for the Medicare population. So even though I didn't formally report in there, one of my personal objectives was to have them under, I had to educate them what we did. And you know, before you know it, they had me speaking, they'd be playing together their whole leadership, you know, which could be 300 people, and were giving me time to talk about what, what I was doing and featuring me on calls with their leadership. So, and it was really about, here's what I'm doing, here's how it can help you. Again, this needed to be not, here's what I'm doing. That's also a mindset change. You know, it's not, here's what I do, but anytime you speak before a group, understand what they want out of it. What aspect is of interest and then think about how you position that. So I'm like, here's the things we're doing, here's why you should care. And so before you, you know it, we're doing these, a lot of these things for Medicare too. So I saw that white space and rather than have them create a team themselves, which could have happened. They had some duplication in Medicare versus commercial because they were set up consciously that way. I said, we're, we're a corporate resource. And even though the people I reported up to didn't always appreciate it initially, it turned out after some restructuring to be a very smart move. Sure. Yeah. So we supported them as well. But it was something okay. which I led rather than was told to do because I saw that as a need. Okay. So at Humana, you were working really kind of on this idea of, of value added as opposed to, and trying to get away from kind of an encounter-based fee-for-service. What initiatives were you really putting into place there? So there we were looking at things like medical homes, we were, we're, you know, which pay additional care coordin coordination fees to practices for doing things differently that deliver value in which themselves can reduce, hopefully, ER visitor hospitalizations. So the whole point we were doing other things around pay for performance similarly. So the whole point was in thinking, if the system is set up for fee-for-service, which everyone agrees is a, probably a bad idea, not how you would design something from the scratch. I mean, w there's a reason we're uh, across the world seen as a low-value system with high cost and uh, outcomes that are, are not where they should be. And it's that we pay for the wrong things. So um, I think most of us agree that we need to move to, toward a different types of payment system. But it's, you know, it's easier said than done, particularly if you're talking about provider entities that are built on fee-for-service. If you go to them and just try to get them to do things that reduce ER visits or readmissions, et cetera, again, they may agree intellectually they're the right things to do. No one is in favor of readmissions, but it hurts them financially. So it means that they may not actually be as effective in managing it and certainly aren't going to spend a lot of effort on that. So it's one of the few industries where rework means you pay more. You know, I remember that as a, um, as a fellow where we had someone who's um, having a revision of their, of their bypass grafts. And it's because the surgeon um, had bypassed the wrong graft. That's a big deal. In other words, they bypassed a healthy vessel and missed a disease. And that's a really bad error, by the way. And yeah. then afterwards, the patient had chest pain and they realized, oops, that should never happen. But it did happen. And, but the system paid again 
for the corrective surgery as opposed to are you you know I mean yeah. which is nuts. You broke it, you fix it. And yeah. you know the other thing um, which I guess influenced me and it's funny how the pieces all come together at some point. So when I was in business school one of the um, I mean, they were all great courses, but one of the really, really important courses I took was something uh, called CCMO, Coordination, Control, and Management of Organizations. And it was really a lot about thinking about the incentives that are in place and what it means for the costs incurred by different parties and how you create the right systems, wh whether related to sales compensation or CEOs or equity ownership, et cetera. And so we talked about things like, you know, how come uh, senior leadership wants a corporate jet because most of the cost is being borne by other people, et cetera. And, and so think about these kind of incentives. And the course focused heavily on, on many of these. And so, you know, it, it's clearly you get into health care and you realize that these sort of lessons, which most other industries have learned, are not being practiced in healthcare. And now as we've gone forward with the ACA, which is, I would say, insurance reform, not healthcare reform. So we, the good news is we've given um, access to care to many more people. But, but the bad news is uh, we've given access to a high-cost, dysfunctional system to many more people. So now there's much more pressure to driving toward value since we're at a point uh, where with, you, know, you read about premium increases and like that's because care is expensive. And we're at a point where with these high-cost drugs, for example, either you individually are paying for it or everyone is paying for it. And the idea that the payer is paying for it isn't really true because the, the money is coming from one of those two sources. So but we're under more and more pressure now in this environment to think about how we manage expenses. And again, we, what we want to do, we don't want to be in the business of saying yes or no, particularly when we're not in the exam room with a patient. I mean, we'll look at the evidence and put together policies in place that reflect uh, evidence-driven medicine, but at the end of the day, the doc is in the exam room with the patient, and they're in the position best influences. And and it, if you so, if you want to think about how best to influence care, think about the right policies and tools, but also about incentives that that reinforce that. And that's a lot of what we're trying to do with how we work with different systems. And so, if you look at what we're doing, so we we were taking baby steps at Humana. Now it's become even more important to both for you men and all the payers and for Harvard Pilgrim. And the, one of the reasons I took this particular CMO role was it, it's really where they wanted me to focus. Okay. And not just on utilization management and, and more of saying no on the nuts and bolts and, and maybe stuff, but thinking strategically, how do we make the system work better? So let's, let's, let's talk now about Harvard Pilgrim. So you, you spent about four years at, at Humana mm -hmm. and then you made the transition over to Harvard Pilgrim where you are here today. Yes. So before we talk about your role, can you tell me a little bit about, tell, tell us a little bit about uh, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare and, and kind of what, what makes it special? Yeah, it really is a um, unique organization. We're not part of Harvard University, although it was actually created by the dean and spun off a little over 40 years ago, the dean of the med school, but it, but it technically is not part of Harvard University. They are a customer, but we have to compete for their business. Okay. We are a um, not-for-profit insurer. In recent years, very not-for-profit, but uh, <laughs> but I, I think it's a positive, and our stakeholders understand we, you know, we care about doing the right thing, and you know, we want to make a little margin so we can stay in business and invest in new areas. But it's not about returning dollars to shareholders, which it, I right. think is an advantage. It's about using okay. dollars for medical service. Yeah. Um, and this is a contrast to Humana, which is a for-profit, quite public company. Quite yes. Yeah. 
Yes. Okay. So it, you know, it's nice not having those things impacting your your thought process and and being able to be. But we still need to break even or a little bit better, hopefully, and you know, and and manage medical expenses for employee employer customers because the markets, exchanges, employers, that, that they've had enough of, of rising costs and they expect us to be doing something. And and you know, more broadly, if you think about how the environment is reconfiguring, if we don't deliver value, why should we exist in this new world? So if, if health plans can't indicate why they're more than just a card in their in your wallet and why they make a difference they shouldn't exist so you know we're, right. we're trying to do a lot around population health and okay. uh, innovative plan design how we work with providers etc but but you know but to your point more and more of these models are becoming critically important in putting these out in place and working with the physicians what are the primary business lines for the for the organization so um, we um, so again we we're, we have about one and a quarter million members. We're in New England, Maine, New Hampshire, Connecticut, and uh, and Massachusetts. Massachusetts is our largest our largest number of members. And but we're primarily in commercial. And recently re-entered Medicare Advantage about a year and a half ago. So okay. um, but primarily commercial historically. Some other things that differentiate us. First of all, we we genuinely care about quality. And you know I think in a world where health plans are reviewed a little bit askance, only slightly better than than elected officials in Congress, uh, we, we don't fall into that bucket. Um, we're viewed as part of the community. Um, we care deeply in some cases, and frequently we, we've made decisions that may be you know, questionable with the evidence, but just driven to want to do the right thing. So, so w even where we have policies or evidence that says, you know, by the book, you would not, you know, they, they purchase something with 20 PT visits, just a plan design, black and white. And they need more to, to, be, to, to continue to recover. We, we, we frequently do approve more. So we do more than we have to. We try to think what the right thing is for the individual, even though we're under a lot of pressure to manage costs by trying to impact in, inappropriate care, for example. But so we do, we, you know, we do have a quality focus. We, you know, we were ranked number, ten, number one in the country by NCQA, the National Quali Committee on Quality Assurance, for 10 years That's based amazing. on quality um, out of all the plans in the country. And, and it, it is, and um, it reflects the fact this is how we do business every day. We don't treat this as an exam to study for when they do the survey. We care about our members. We, we focus on identifying gaps in quality, HEDA scores, and, 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 and um, closing them, et cetera. So we're lucky to have a great provider environment here, but when you're number one for 10 years in a row, it's, it's, not, you know, it's not statistical. Uh, Right, you know, right. It's not an accident. accident. Um, and you know, I remember when I came here. You know, um, I you know I was in awe of it, uh, of their performance. And NCQA actually just stopped ranking. They 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 decided to stop doing that, and now we're kind of trenches, if you would, have kind of excellent, very good, etc. But I remember meeting the people that did that. And you know, one of the things in any new organization is determining where do you focus and where do you not mess with it. And, and I said, look, I'm coming from an organization uh, which had multiple health plans ranked in different parts of the country, and I think their highest rank plan was like number 50 or 60 um, I'm gonna stay out of your way I'm gonna I'm not gonna um, pretend that I can actually help you do your jobs better I'm gonna stay out of your way in this area and just tell me what you need yeah. which I, th I think w was was a good move so um, the other thing about Harvard Pilgrim we we have our own Institute th that does research which is a terrific resource for helping validate a lot of these cool things we're doing and our Institute actually incorporates the Department of Population Medicine at Harvard Medical School where I have the uh, pleasure of chairing their board of managers there and have a faculty appointment. So um, one of the surprises is that the chair of that actually reports to me and actually dotted line to the dean of Harvard Med School. Wow. And I, I don't provide a lot of direction to this person because he's incredible and way smarter than me. <laughs> so again, I'm there. I 
try to help, but I, I really tr also try to stay out of his way because, you know, he's tenured Harvard faculty and, and just is brilliant at what he does, right. the type of studies they do. And they actually do a lot of the research for FDA with their Sentinel project where they use data from across the country in an appropriate way to identify early indicators of adverse drug reactions or other type of events, for example. So it, it's, it's a great part of my job that I enjoy. And, you know, they, they're just an incredible organization. And it, it is a unique relationship. The way I explain it to people, if you go over to Harvard Med School or any med school and you ask where the Department of Anatomy is, they'll point to a building. And if you ask where the Department of uh, Physiology is, they'll point to a wing. And if you ask where the Department of Surgery is, they'll say, oh, there's no Department of Surgery here on this campus. You've got to go over to the teaching hospital. And by analogy, if you ask, where is the Department of Population Medicine, they'll say it is part of Harvard Pilgrim, which is a good place for it to be. So a lot of collaboration there, and it adds a dimension to the role that I would not otherwise have, which, is, which also makes it very attractive. That's neat. So you were hired on as the uh, Chief Medical Officer of Harvard Pilgrim. What does that position involve? Well, ultimately, I'm accountable for the quality and as part of that, the cost and value of the over $2 billion we spend on, on healthcare every year. And it's really thinking about how are we cost effective in managing um, really the, 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 what we sell to our, um, to our customers. And so if you think about the components of that, that's, I, I have a pretty broad uh, accountability both um, strategically and operationally. So in addition to the, the Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare Institute, which I mentioned, um, my areas include pharmacy, including managing our formulary and I chair our P&T committee and we've got a team and we actually do our own rebate contracting directly with manufacturers which um, many organizations our size uh, choose to leave to the PPM but we think we can do that effectively. There is our wellness area. We're providing our wellness platform and incentives and in working with employers. Our clinical quality area, working on the HEDIS and, and other scores and, and working to close gaps in care and improve the quality of care that our members receive. There is our care management disease management. We have over 100 nurses who work from home providing either wellness coaching or diabetes or oncology disease management programs or complex case management to help serve our members better. We also have our, our clinical policy area and regulatory areas. Member appeals and grievances also reports up. And then there is um, our network medical management area, which is very near and dear to my heart, which I've worked with closely since being here. And that's the area that develops all of these innovative care management models and other ways, ways of working with provider entities to figure out what are the right models. If we say, let's pay you for value, that doesn't mean anything. So right. they work in actually developing and piloting and putting in place these, these models. Okay. And then finally, a department that did not exist when I joined, medical informatics. And that's something where I saw, I asked people, how do you get the information you need? And having worked at companies like Ingenix and, and uh, Thompson, I understood the importance. And when I asked, how do you get the information you need? I got an answer, well, it depends who you know. Which said, which told me uh, there was a problem. So I put together. A so business there was no case, corporate solution at that point. But we put together a business case, and we 
put together a new department and license some tools and you know and that's now really critically important both to finding variation and improvement opportunities for cost or quality and even more important now for as we work with provider groups under these new models we need to give them the tools and dashboards and the like this is now critical this is not nice to have this is important if we're going to give them greater accountability and they're going to take risk how do we give them the, the tools that they need to actually manage the population so the, the, so it's kind of a broad swath and then also kind of strategic planning for our area and then uh, working across the organization on many initiatives, working with the product people and supporting sales, et cetera. So coming back to our discussion earlier about value-based compensation, you, you've actually written a couple of articles about some of the efforts that you guys are, are attempting to do here. In your article, Paying for Value, What's Next, uh, you say that the challenge now is about how to transform our system to one that rewards value. And, uh, I was just looking at some statistics and it said that, you know, we had talked a minute ago about uh, fee-for-service. And back in 88, some 73% of employer plans were fee-for-service and today we're down to about 1%. Mm -hmm. So how are, you, how are you going about this process of shifting towards one that rewards value? Yeah, so, um, you know, again, we, we had a um, experiment with capitation in the 90s and, and a lot of people feel that did not end well. And so what I think was learned at that point is giving docs a set amount of money and saying, you know, deliver the most cost-effective care possible, which then is now going to be the cheapest care possible, is, is not really good means for long-term success. And so what's changed is that everybody gets that and we realize we need to, to, to talk about outcomes. We talk less about cost and more about value. What, it, what are the outcomes you're getting for, for that cost? So if you, you can think about it, quality over cost, if you would. So we're really trying to, to agree first on the outcomes and then what does it take to get there and coming up with fair payment that incentivizes physicians to think about what the right things are to do and not to think about what the things that, that get them paid the most. So for example, if you can manage a population and keep them out of the ER and um, that, let's say a diabetic and keep them out of the, the hospital, out of the ICU with the diabetic acidosis. That's a good thing, obviously. Uh, yet, if there are things you can do, let's say telephonic or, or virtual visits that aren't compensated that you won't employ, that, that's a disconnect. So it's really trying to get away from you're doing what gets you a billable CPT code which again, I don't need, and you could view that on an ethical framework, but there's also the real world framework is that they have their own salaries to pay and infrastructure. So you have to think about doing things that are sustainable long-term that are a win-win. So we've tried to come up with the right outcomes. So we're spending much more time on the right outcome models. We've got more sophisticated informatic systems to share data as we go. So it's not just here's some goals, but we'll meet with you regularly so you know how you're doing and provide you some portals and other informatic tools so you can manage the population better. It's having the population tools that we have that we can w embed into these models to support the providers, whether complex case management or other types of programs. And, but it's also being flexible. And one of the big ideas is that one size doesn't fit all. And, and so another learning is if you tell docs either we'll capitate you or, or else not at all and you'll be disadvantaged, that may not be the right thing to do to force docs to take risk they're not ready for. And so what we've tried to do is come up with a more graduated approach and the idea that we want to pay everyone for value, uh, but we realize that you may have a different level of sophistication or a different level of um, comfort than, than another group. 
So no matter what your level of population health sophistication or your ability to manage risk or your willingness to manage risk, um, we want something on the menu for you. So for example, we have at a population level, we have maybe 10% of our members who are fully capitated by groups that are very good at, at doing that. And again, we, we're very clear on what the equality measures are so that we're not paying, it's not the goal isn't, you don't want the lowest cost provider, I don't want that for my family, you want the highest value. So it's designed to, to, to support that. But we also have a large number of, of our providers, um, the majority certainly in eastern Massachusetts for at least a portion of their population who are in one of these models other than fee-for-service. So for example, if you're not ready for full risk, maybe you're in a shared savings or shared risk model. So a shared savings model looks at the overall cost of care for your patients who are attributed to you, whether it's money paid to you as a doc or spent on imaging or you know, or ERs or drugs or things that didn't go in your pocket. And it looks at the year-over-year -year trend for that population versus a broader population. And if your population does better, you get some of that savings. And in a shared risk model, you get some of that savings, even more of that share. But if it goes in the other direction, you may have to pay something back. Okay. So we're providing a pathway to acquire com um, comfort and to work at different levels of risk with the idea of being paid for outcomes. We don't want you to say, I'm not ready for full capitation, can't work with you. And the other area where we've been very innovative, you want to think of the other axis, is these are great if you're comfortable managing a population, if you're configured to manage a population. What if you're a really good oncology group? What if you're good at orthopedic surgery, diabetes? Those models don't really help you. Right. So uh, we've, so we've... Because those models are primarily primary care. Well, they're population-based population for all care. aspects. So okay. if you're a large system like a Leahy, uh, Beth Israel, okay. Deaconess, okay. Um, Atrius, et cetera, those, th okay. those can work well for yeah. you. But if yeah. you're New England Baptist and your expertise is orthopedics, I see. I see what you, you don't uh, kind of own the patient, you can't influence a lot of that. Right. So what we've done is try to look at, at what's on the menu for those groups kind of on another axis, if you would. So we've, you know, we've done a lot with medical homes for primary care. We sat down with an oncology group and we said, let's figure out a model that works for you. Let's look at the medical home model white out the things that don't make sense and let's talk together. We're not bringing this to you, do it or else. Let's talk about the things you can do that can impact care, that can improve quality, reduce inappropriate care, whether it's unneeded ER or end-of-life care that isn't appropriate, et cetera. What are things you can do, but which you're not doing today in part because you're not paid for or they're not part of the expectations. And let's build up that model where let's agree on those are the expectations and the outcomes and uh, we'll pay you differently in a way. We'll pay you base fee for service, but an additional care coordination fee that reflects that savings. And we're doing that with a large series of practices, Commonwealth Hematology Oncology, which recently got acquired by Dana-Farber, but, but, but they're still maintaining them as community practices and we're working with them and that's gotten a lot of attention has been successful. Um, we're doing bundled payments for procedures, whether it's for cabbages or even for colonoscopies, the idea that if we agree on, uh, on a procedure and the right trigger in the right period of time and we pay you uh, in a way that's fixed, you're going to figure out what have you been doing that doesn't need to be done, whether it's around post-op care or rehab or unnecessary lab work and stop doing it. And, and we design these in a way that we and the provider practices share in that savings. So we look at what we think it'll cost and we share some of these data models transparently and we will show them, look, a lot of the patients here are going to ERs because they don't have post-op pain management. 
if you have if you think more about prescriptions and about providing access after hours someone who can call on a script and we can eliminate those think of the dollars that go into this so we're, we're clear about what we think the drivers are we also we also want to make this a win-win so this is not a one-off negotiation like buying a car at the end of the year we want everyone to say this is great let's continue it not you had smarted us because we didn't yeah. think about that because you are so, in a relationship with these people yeah we want it's this is a lot of work I mean yeah. some of these take can take six months to figure out the pieces before they go live mm -hmm. so we want them to work. We don't want someone to outsmart the other. Say, well, God, we, you know, you, we didn't realize that this care was delivered and it's in the bundle or something that, because of information asymmetry. So um, we, we bend over backwards to be fair, to course correct. If there's a new drug comes out uh, co that should be part of a bundle, for example, and it isn't priced in, and we agreed, for example, what about something catastrophic? You know, the docs haven't signed up for that. So we agreed with most of our bundles. If something happens, let's say with a cabbage, someone has a. Uh, you know, a stroke or something, which is very expensive. We, we actually statistically drew a line in two sigma, two standard deviations away from the mean, and said above that point it reverts to fee for service or out of the bundle because it, it isn't fair to you to put you in that situation where a catastrophic event could wipe out the, you know, all of the good you've done with all of your other yeah. patients. So it's yeah. really about sitting down at the table, being fair, and doing something that works for everyone versus a typical contract negotiation framework under fee-for-service of we want to pay you less, you want us to pay you more. So again, this is you yeah. know, about how do we enlarge the pie through eliminating unnecessary costs. So that's, to me, a lot of the fun and, and, and very rewarding, and a lot of the docs are getting that. Yeah. Could you briefly describe what you mean by a bundle? Because I know there's there was a t there's a time element to it. There's a, there's a number of things that kind of keep something in or out of the bundle. Yeah. So a, a bundle is you know and you know in a sense a DRG is kind of a bundle for the hospitalization component alone, just for the for, for the facility portion. We're trying to put this on steroids with with guarantees. So a, a, an example would be a bundle. There's generally a trigger, and you can do this for chronic care. We're starting to play with diabetes procedures are are still complex, but they're simpler. So let's say a total knee replacement. Okay. Or, you know, it could be treating stage three colon cancer, but let's say a total knee. So we agree on a certain population, let's say we'll have a different bundle for those with bad heart disease or some other or revisions, but let's agree on a certain consistent population. And once we agree that they need a total knee, uh, we'll pay you through the bundle. And what that means is that all care after that point, all the pre-op work, the hospitalization, the rehab, um, the additional physicians who see that patient. So if, a, in a, if a, an internal medicine does a pre-op consultation, that's included in the bundle. It's coming. We're going to pay you this fixed amount, whatever the dollar value is. You're going to divvy it up. Although in, you know, in some models, you know, it's paid out and then recouped afterwards, which I don't think is effective managerially for influencing change. Get into the tragedy of the commons problem. Mm -hmm. Why should I be more efficient if he may not be in suck of all the excess? So we need an entity that actually is sophisticated. They can manage the pieces and the cash flows and manage the, the dollar payments to all the pieces of the delivery chain consistent with and commensurate with the value they're creating. But um, so it would include for procedure hospitalization, all of the physicians, you know, surgeon, anesthesiologist, um, the other physicians who may see them, post-op care, generally rehab, et cetera. And, and generally we try to go out to a certain point in time, ideally a year or two, sometimes based on the groups they may not want to go out that far. So if, it, if there's a year, for example, that means that any additional care during the time that's related to the total knee could be an ER visit, it could be a revision, it could be a hospitalization for infection or, or a revision to the implant, you don't get paid extra for doing that. 
So we build in a little into the bundle based upon a cost allocation for that, if you would. But if you believe that those are under, you know, that can be influenced by the physicians, which we think they can be, then it's fair to put that in there and to say this is now an opportunity for you to improve your margins by by being uh, by thinking more about what you do and you don't do. And there's a lot of evidence uh, suggesting that those kind of models are very effective in driving care with the right partners. Again, we're starting to think about chronic disease as well, which is more complicated for reasons that are probably obvious. Mm -hmm. And beyond bundle, bundles, we're starting to think about outcomes-based payment for pharmaceuticals. So high-cost drugs are in the news lately, whether hepatitis C or the new PCSK9s for cholesterol. And I each of those classes, for example, is is it's just, uh, they're, they're impacting our trend, our year-over-year -year increase in spend by over 1% each, just for, by one new class of drugs. Mm -hmm. And I just gave you two examples in the mm -hmm. past two years. So pharma companies are historically paid for pills, right? They don't know or care right. what happens once it, and, and we're telling more and more, no, you need to be paid for solutions. We're paying everybody else for outcomes you need to get with a program. Really? Fascinating. And again, the, you're getting a lot of, here's why we can't do that, but we're starting to push pretty hard. That's when we're in the very early innings, and we're starting to talk about, okay, so you Novartis know, say your, your new CHF drugs reduces hospitalization by 21%. And again, given there are data challenges and population identification issues, yes, but are you willing to pay us back some of our money if we don't see the hospitalization drop by that amount? Hey, it's your data. You know, we're not asking you to commit to something. That's what you said on that when you applied for the FDA labeling. So, right. um, and, and again, initially it's here's why we can't, and now we're starting to push them. And particularly where we, as we're, we as payers are being more selective, so more and more we're likely to say, yes, you can have this one hep C drug, but not the other. And we're likely to do that with, with other classes as well, where we see them both as being highly effective and equally safe. A lot of our, you know, a lot of our decisions relating to our formulary are likely to be around, are you willing to change the, the thought process to one where you're putting your money where your mouth is? Wow, what a fascinating idea. So it's, it's, that's cutting edge and as part of the fund as well. Yeah, neat. Looking at it kind of at a strategic level, we've seen a lot of consolidation with health insurers over the last several years, particularly after the passage of the ACA. From your perspective, why is this happening? Well, I think there's a couple of things going on. Number one, there's, uh, there are certain benefits in economy of scale. So when you talk about something like the exchanges, which is uh, you know, a fear they could promote commoditization, everyone's looking at the lowest cost premium, there's more pressure to reduce cost. And certainly taking an expensive claim system and distributing the cost, if you would, among you know, 20 million lives instead of 2 million is clearly more cost effective and allows for less of an administrative overhead. That, that's, that's one point. And you know, uh, some large payers, they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on their web portals on, on how they go retail and, and engage consumers. As a smaller plan, you don't have the resource to be doing that. Another issue is that, and this is kind of an arms race, there is benefit to strengthen contracting, and again, there is some you know restrictions that the FTC looks at, but we, we see the providers consolidating very quickly. Okay. So the, the, there's so a something bit of an arms race. There is a bit of an arms race. So that okay. in some cases, the providers have a lot of market power, and um, you know if you don't if you if you don't represent a large population, you, you're worried about your ability to you know to negotiate favorable deals, uh, you know based on contracts. Okay. I think the benefits of being smaller, we're more nimble. I can come up with a new outcomes-based model and get it through here a lot quicker than many of the larger entities. So you know there there are benefits to being nimble, but that is what is driving that, and, and I think it's likely to continue, um, you know, in the industry. If, I'd like to transition and, and talk a bit about leadership. What would you say is your leadership philosophy? 
hire great people, build the right culture, and where everyone feels respected and heard, and work with your people to develop the right outcome measures and then kind of get out of their way and figure out who needs help and who, um, for whom is your help creating a disruption. And so choose where you focus, but really focus on the outcomes and get everyone on the same page. I'm really proud of the fact we do our, our employee surveys uh, every two years, a large Gallup survey, and health services always comes across at the top, generally above the national averages and above the best in class 90th percentiles. And we look at, are, do people like and respect their colleagues? Do they feel valued? Do they understand what they're accountable for? Do they have the tools they need? I mean, this stuff is not rocket science. But it's really how you work with people every day. And I guess the, 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 the real lesson for me here is when I think of, uh, of the individuals who've inspired me and the bosses I've had where I want to go to work every day and do my best and, and help them be successful, they make me feel like I'm part of the team, like I'm important, like they care what I have to say and like it's us, as opposed to like it's them giving me direction. And similarly, I try to respect, I've tried to learn from that, respect the people who report to me, treat them as colleagues, and, and peers and um, you know and, and build that type of relationship as well and you know and I, I think to a large part I've been successful certainly with Harvard Pilgrim it, it's really the uh, best group of people I've ever worked with so um, you know all, it, just a tremendous uh, environment here what do you say or what would you say are the characteristics and behaviors of a, of a good leader and how do you aspire to those yourself I, I think they have integrity they're honest they're transparent and they care about the people they work with. And again, easy things to say, but again, I've been in organizations and learned a lot by watching you know, bad examples, which I think are the best way to learn lessons. So, um, you know, it, so you know, a lot of these are obvious. I, I think you need to, you know, when, if I'm not genuine, people can tell. If, I don't, if I'm not saying what I mean, I'm, I'm not very good at hiding that. I think most people can tell that better than others can think. So we all know people who we think are kind of full of themselves or saying what you want to hear. And, and, and my theory is people around you are very good at picking up on that. So be genuine. Um, also, a few other things, you know, be clear in outcomes, address issues, don't let them fester. And, you know, and have the difficult conversations. It's, it's very easy to uh, not want to deal with conflict or to want others to deal with it, but there's, there's frequently conflict, particularly when you're going through periods of rapid change. And, um, you know, some people may be taking on new responsibilities, others you're carving up things differently. And people who are passionate about what they do sometimes, um, you know, they, they're, they're focused on their view of the world, and if they're losing some responsibility, they may not be happy about it. So really just try to think about how they're, you know, understand how they're looking at the world, but also address the conflict head on. And again, to the extent that you value people around you and they know that they feel valued, you can generally work through issues. Can, can you give an example of a difficult leadership lesson that maybe you had to learn the hard way? Well, I mean, I, you know, a, a very, um, a mistake I've made and, and regretted is moving too quick to hire someone who, because you, you've got a burning need to fill the position. Okay. And it, it, it's particularly tougher in the for-profit world. So I've been in situations where I felt pressured to hire someone, and I've been told if you don't hire them, the dollars are going to go away. In other words, you won't be able to at all. So it creates a lot of pressure to hire someone before that happens, right? And particularly in a for-profit world where budgets are tight, and if uh, the financials get more challenging, they, they tighten up. And so there are one or two cases where I've ignored my intuition, had someone who maybe had a you know good resume in the pieces, but I just 
worried about their cultural fit or something about their competencies or there was something gnawing away. And you could convince yourself, you could ignore that and convince yourself that they, that they were, that they kind of met the job description objectively. And, and, and there are two cases where I've done that and both where I, I, they turned out to be disasters and it takes a long time to manage someone out of an organization. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I guess the, those were difficult. And, I th and the, the, the corollary to, the, to that is good leaders do make mistakes and, and it's okay, but acknowledge it. And if there are relationships that aren't working, someone's in the wrong role for them, or you've made a hiring mistake, take it head on and manage them out. Do it in a way that's humane. If it's just a poor fit, acknowledge it. You know, don't, you know, sometimes uh, HR likes to create performance improvement plans and make it very hard, but there are points where you just sit down and say, look, this is just a poor fit. I don't think this is working, and frequently they don't think it's working either because they're aware of it, and, you know, agree on some severance and, and a, 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 you know, and a path to exiting the organization or the role. So I, I think many people, because those are hard discussions and, you know, and uh, it's something I think a lot of people avoid or avoid until a situation gets so bad that it's, you know, something that could have been handled better earlier on. Well, it's going to take a lot of courage to do that, though. I mean, that's not an easy thing to... It isn't, and, and it's something that a lot of people are uncomfortable with, And um, but again, it, ultimately it makes them more effective managers, and, part, and, and it is something you need to be able to do if you're managing a large number of people. I mean, there will be mistakes, there will be changes, there will be people who are effective in one role, the role changes, the organization changes, and they're no longer effective, and you know, it helps remind yourself that ultimately you're not doing them a favor if they're in a role where they're not being successful. Okay. Can you give an example of a leadership challenge that you're particularly proud of having met? Yeah, so um, I was in an organization where I had an employee who worked in another market. And he, again, he had a, d a dotted line relationship and he was responsible for a very large and influential customer. And because they were so influential, they were getting a lot of attention, probably the most of any in this broad organization. and. Leaders were coming to that market and, and not even including him in the discussion, so he's being bypassed. So not surprisingly, he kind of feels, uh, you know, a, a little bit, uh, you know, disengaged, and it's showing. And he's a little bit of fatalistic. Well, why should I pay attention to this? No one's asking me anyway, and you're leaving me out of things that I should. And he was right. Yet it was something which, you know, leadership said, this is our most important customer. We're going to be hands-on. And, it, you know, there were some challenges in helping them meet their trend challenging, their cost challenges in the market, and he wasn't grasping it. He wasn't, and I remember being in a meeting, and he, he was on the phone, and I was with some senior leadership, and he wasn't, he, he tell he was disengaged. And, and I, I knew this was a, a very bright person who was, you know, had been very effective in the past. And so someone very senior mutes and goes, I want him fired. And, and uh, so, which I, don't, I, I thought was unfair to him and it was the wrong decision for all parties. And, and I, so I said, I'll tell you what, let me work on this and, and see what I can do. And so what I did is I sat down with him, tried to shake him up a little bit, but also protect him from a bit of that help. And, and I, I, put, I spent a lot of personal time putting together a strategic framework for how we, we worked with this large demanding customer. What, and it, you know, looking at certain areas, what do they want, what do we, what we can we, what's the overlap, and helped develop a very focused plan for addressing, which was very well received. I then stepped out of the way, let him, made sure he was given credit for that. He now is more engaged. The, the people who want them fired no longer want them fired. I didn't have to replace a difficult position and, uh, you know, and, and things worked out well. Nice. What do you look for when hiring leaders and, and evaluating those leaders? 
I look for people who, uh, so first of all, I look for people who, who understand the business. And we get a lot of people who sell leadership. And leadership is kind of a vague phrase, and there are some good leadership characteristics. But one of the things I've learned, particularly in, in healthcare and particularly environments like the one I work in here, I have a lot of really smart people. They know that their business. Now, in, in most cases, in, in some aspect, and, and I really hope this is true, I hope I'm the dumbest person in the room. And I want to hire people who want to be the dumbest person in the room, too. So if I'm sitting there with my pharmacy people, some of them, you know, pharmacy degrees or not, they, they know far more about a lot of this stuff than I will ever, than I've, than I've forgotten. And my NC Care regularly, she knows more about this, and, and that, that's, that's healthy. So you need people who have a strong enough ego that, first of all, that, that they want that and accept that, understand that's really important to management, which clinical people, particularly MDs, don't always get. So that's, that's one piece. But you, so, but you also need enough domain knowledge. So in re, when I've hired, particularly for, for more leadership roles, um, and you get people who are like, I, I've never done this job exactly, but I, I, I'm, I, I bring leadership. Well, and I'm thinking, you need to know enough about the, the fundamentals of the business or that area that you, you'll be taken seriously. Otherwise, you're gonna be eaten alive. And some people don't understand that. So leadership is important but it's also good to have enough domain knowledge. And one of the things I've noticed in my career is that really good, impactful leaders can um, understand that and they know enough. So when, you, when I look at my, I, I spend a lot of my time at a high level and, and strategic, but I also can sit down and do a deep dive into an area and have a good discussion and, and ask questions that indicate that I, I'll pick up on something if it's, if it's missing. So if I didn't have that domain knowledge to be able to go and get into the weeds and, and talk intelligently about that, I wouldn't be respected, I wouldn't be uh, impactful. So part of it is knowing enough that leadership is enough, you actually have to understand the details. And when I see my fellow leaders here who are, uh, are generally very, um, you know, do, do a very good job and very effective, and, and you, you'll see that they all are people who, who know their businesses. You're not up here, they can do a deep dive into the specifics of, of any area under them. And again, so finding that per peop those people are really important. I I'd say humility. Understanding that uh, if you're leading a team and if it's about your ego, and there are people coming in and it shows very, very clearly. Are they using words like I or we or talking about how their teams developed them or what they did before? And again, you can talk about your own accomplishments while acknowledging that a lot of it is driven by, by others. And certainly the job I have, you know, I, you know, I, I think the role is important, but most of, th of the things that get executed get uh, get done by others around me. You know, you know, if I'm if I'm helping them and making their job um, no more difficult, many would say that that's that's a win. But you know, you're really impactful through others. The more and more senior you go, and you need to, you need to understand that. Also, for particularly for clinical people, um, and MDs are the worst of all. You, you know, you. You know, you need to understand that it's the, you're not getting paid for your credentials. You're getting paid because you're doing a job and you're having an impact. And there's a lot of people who you'll interview and they see their job as well. My and they'll say this in interview. Well, it's to be there and to give advice if people ask me questions. And I'll say no. You're accountable for the trend in Maine or New Hampshire, or whatever. You need to understand what's happening with the cost drivers and be managing that and determining if there are ways to engage. You need to be working with the physicians around these new care delivery models. You need to be out supporting the sales team, you know, and, and here's how we're measuring success. So you're you're accountable for these, not show up for work and you'll get paid. 
and again, um, clinical people, because you know, if you you know, if you're a in a clinical specialty, MD or otherwise, you go to work, you get paid, you know, you kind of right. do what you're told to, versus having to make sure you're driving value. So certainly, you can go to work every day in a management role and for quite a while not really be doing anything substantive kind of moving pieces around and you know but ultimately it, that you know that job you know, is found not to be uh, needed I mean probably the, the worst example uh, this is kind of a poster child for uh, what not to do in terms of hiring so I was at a um, at the, the start of Health Allies years ago we were at a conference and this uh, physician came up to the CEO and said I really want to work for you I think a physician like me would be great to help you and the CEO very, very adroitly put his arm around and said, "That's great. You'd be great. Let me introduce you to Michael." So he then, you know, he then said, essentially, "I don't really understand, you know, all of what you do, but I think it would be great to to be a part of the team." And I think I, so. I told him a little bit, and he said, "I'll send you my my resume." So he sent me a resume and cover letter. He was an MD and MBA, primarily a practice. Never got a lot of the lessons we're talking about here. And in the letter he he sent me, which I still remember clearly, I posted it, of course, which probably got defaced by others in the office, but it it said, hi, uh, I'm the physician who came up to you and didn't know what you guys did, but wanted to work for you. I'm thinking, okay, well, thanks for reminding me of that. And now I've looked it up and I, I see that you're creating this provider network for ancillary services and you know, I, I would love to be out there with you. Nothing would make, I, th I think I could, would love to work with you on flying into a market, playing golf with the physicians and, you know, take them out dinner and, and trying to get them. And I'm thinking, is that what you think I do? That isn't, that isn't, uh, I, I, you know, I'm thinking, I want that job too. Cl clearly we, um, you know, so, you know, th there's sometimes a thought of, that I've gotten to a certain point in another aspect of my career, I've earned something and you'd be lucky to have me versus understanding here's um, what the job entails and here's what I can do for you. Yeah. The, the other thing I'll say in hiring in general, and I think this is something most of us do intuitively, you hire someone for one of two reasons with respect to competencies. Either they've done the job before or they've, they have the skills and competencies and they haven't done that job before, but they've done a different job and you think that they have the skills that they can learn the piece that they don't know and take it on. Did you, you mentioned a couple of mentors kind of in, in passing in our conversation. How did, how did your, these people help you and was that a formal or informal relationship? Well, I've had several all informal. I've never been in a formal mentorship program as a mentee, but I've had several who've been informal mentors. And I think it's, it's very helpful to have people who are in, in a role more senior to yours, generally she should not be your boss, obviously, but where they can serve as a sounding board, if nothing else. In some cases, they may indirectly lead to jobs or board seats, and that all of that has happened to me. But most importantly, it's someone you can talk to and objectively be a sounding board. So when you're considering a job change or a challenge at work, and someone who, again, you've got a good trusting relationship, a sense of confidentiality, and you know you need someone who can tell you no, you're not seeing this correctly. I, I think you're making a mistake, for example. So I think I think that's important. You know, more and more we you know there's more formal um, networks. You know, we at Harvard Pilgrim provide mentors for for employees again in other areas of the company generally. And there's an industry trade association, AHIP, America's Health Insurance Plan. I'm now serving as a mentor for the third year for a chief medical officer from another organization or someone or someone who is in, in that role or a more junior role who is aspiring to be CMO. 
and so you know I speak with them monthly and they do a site visit and meet with myself and my team and so I found that rewarding uh, I, I enjoy engaging those people again they're they're all really bright high potential or they wouldn't be nominated by their organizations for this so you know they hopefully learn something I learn you know they pair us up with people in other parts of the country whom you're not competing with so I learn about them as people about lessons they've learned about how they do things in their organization so it's it's mutually beneficial and I enjoy it you just mentioned AHIP. What other professional organizations are you a part of? AHIP, you know, there, there's many. AHIP is one f for big, for on health plan side. There's another one, the um, American Association for Physician Leadership, which is formerly the American College of Physician Executives, which a lot of MDs who are in or aspiring to these kind of roles. There's also the American College of Healthcare Executives for um, non-clinician or clinicians in the healthcare space, which is are terrific. You, are you a member of ACHE? I've actually let my ah, membership okay. lapse. Um, I was, but I just can't even keep There's up so with everything. There's so many things, sure. Um, and, um, and, but also, um, people should think se seriously about alumni associations and other affinity groups. So, for example, at Harvard Business School, I've been a member of, and I'm an, 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 a board member, and I'm actually co-president of the uh, HBS Healthcare Alumni Association. So that, so you know, now I'm, I'm part of the leadership there, but I was a member for many years because that gave me access to people in healthcare leadership positions, fellow alumni getting together for conferences and other things. And you know, you graduate knowing people in your year, but you don't know those who are five or 10 years out. And this really brings everyone together and has provided a lot of networking and growth opportunities and been a lot of fun. So to the extent that you're part of, you know, you're an alumnus of an organization that has some sort of particularly healthcare-related group, I, I'd suggest getting involved and not just joining, but helping lead it and helping do programming, which is a great way to really broaden your network as well as learn. So final question, based on your experiences, uh, what advice do you have for clinicians who are thinking about making the transition to a management role? I think there are more and more opportunities as we go from being a cottage industry to one which needs to be de facto well-managed and which is you know, again, going to an or environment where more physicians are employees, we, we you know, they have bosses, uh, they, you know, they need to be managed, there's, the, the systems all need physician and other clinical leadership, so there's more and more opportunities. So I, I, I think it's great, and I think in many cases those with clinical backgrounds are well positioned to do these jobs. The, the caveat, I, I would remind them, the most important piece is it's a different mental framework. You need to be able to check your ego at the door if you're going to be effective. Um, the things that work clinically, that people will listen to you by dint of your doctor so-and-so uh, will, will hurt you if you want to be on the management side. Um, the other advice I would have is become educated, whether it is through seminars, through an MHA or, um, or, or um, MBA or MPH or, or other education, this is a skill set and there's knowledge to be appreciated. And I think in many cases clinicians who've taken courses in pharmacology or organic chemistry and others where they're, they're very objective data driven, don't, don't get the softer side of management. And the one thing I've, I've seen, the thing that separates those who are successful from those who are not, it's not, uh, it's not the underlying uh, in intellect. Most people at this point have enough brain cells, they have enough IQ points. What they need are more EQ points. It's that emotional intelligence that, that determines whether they're successful. So s search your, yourself long and hard and make sure you understand what that is and, and, and if you don't have those pieces, um, again, do some coursework or some learning or some self-reflection before uh, making a decision. Thank you so much for your time today. 
appreciate you being part of the program. You're most welcome. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.